Universities as communities have responsibility for well-being of everyone associated with them. Whether that's financial, your digital well-being, academic well-being. Because the meeting culture in universities is bonkers. What advice did you give the Vice-Chancellors? Look at what you've done. Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, or good morning, wherever you are. And uh, what a timely webinar we're having today talking about well-being. I also want to acknowledge that I'm hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia. Universities as communities have responsibility for well-being of everyone associated with them. It's no easy task to manage the various challenges required to ensure staff and students are safe, physically, emotionally, and socially. Today's webinar brings together a panel of experts from diverse set of institutions and organizations. I'm confident that all of us will take away many messages and insights to help us in or work as educators and supporters of students. Before we get to the questions, can each of you provide us with some background on your experience regarding student and staff wellbeing in higher education? And I invite John Baldwin to speak first, then Alison Goldwyn, Kerry Calloway, and finally, Christina Hughes. So John. Judith, thank you. And uh, good morning, good evening, everyone. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I'm JISC's Managing Director of Higher Education. JISC is the National Research and Education Network in the UK. We provide the, the infrastructure for all universities, uh, the Janet Network. Uh, we offer cybersecurity and so on. But we also work in a, in a very strong uh, thought leadership sense, helping our members to, to navigate the, these challenging times. The main input here, Judith, um, over uh, six months last year, we ran a learning and teaching reimagined project, which engaged with well over a a thousand stakeholders in HE, students, professional staff, academics, um, steered by a group of 14 vice chancellors. It, it left the sector with seven challenges for the long haul in terms of what learning and teaching might look like in 2030, as well as offering advice and guidance in the short run. As part of that, well-being was a, was a key strand. Um, the engagement with students, we had 22,000 students respond to um, various questionnaires. And I'll draw on that as we go through the discussion this morning. I've also got experience in institutions, having worked uh, at Warwick uh, and Manchester in the UK at Murdoch University in Perth. Ah, okay, excellent. Alison, I invite you to speak, to introduce yourself. Hello everyone, yeah, my name's Alison Golden. I'm currently the um, Director of Student Health and Inclusion at the University of Bristol got uh, several kind of um, uh, specialist services within my portfolio. So the counselling service um, and our mental health advisory service, our student health service and our student inclusion service, which includes the disability support. Um, I've worked <coughs> in education for about 18 years in different roles. Some of them a bit more directly working with students. I came to the University of Bristol nearly three years ago. Uh, to take on this role. So, yeah, a long experience of working with, with students and staff who are delivering different types of services to students, but mostly involved in the kind of mental health and wellbeing side of things. 
Um, and now at Bristol, I'm one of the leads for our mental health and wellbeing strategy, which is a, 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 a big piece of work that the University of Bristol has really focused on in the last four years. Um, and that's a continuing commitment that we've got to that piece of work. I'm also the um, one of the safeguarding leads, and I mean safeguarding with a big S, but also with a small S. And um, I um, another big part of the work that I've been focusing on in the lot since moving to Bristol is looking at the use of drugs, including alcohol, amongst our students and how we can best support them. So that's just three of the kind of main things that I that I focus on uh, and continue to kind of see as my uh, significant remit. So hopefully Thank I can bring something helpful. I'm sure you will. Kerry. Good morning, everybody. Um, and thank you for inviting me along today. I'm Kerry Kellaway and I'm head of library at Plymouth Marjon University. We're a small university in the southwest of England um, with a big heart. That is our motto. Um, and I've been asked along here today, I suppose, because um, my interest in well-being and my responsibilities for well-being come from an academic skills perspective. So my experience is um, sort of in the academic skills arena, so developing um, skills and confidence and combating imposter syndrome amongst students who come from slightly underprivileged backgrounds, that kind of thing as well as having a keen interest in uh, libraries, how they work and how they can support and improve individual well-being. Thank you. And finally, Christina. Hi, everyone. Um, it's really great to be here. I'm Christina Hughes. I'm a professor of women and gender, and I've held senior roles in three universities in the UK. Um, Warwick, when John was there as well, um, Sheffield Hallam and Kent. In all of those roles, my responsibilities have been for student experience and their welfare. And indeed, when I was at Kent latterly, I uh, led student services, which was um, a brilliant opportunity actually for me to see some of the issues um, that Alison will be so familiar with day to day. Um, I'm currently uh, very excited because I'm setting up a new enterprise called Women Space. It's designed to support women who work in universities to flourish in their careers and their leadership. And um, I guess my experience tells me we need to put more care into universities. And that's where I come from, you know, care and compassion and how we can build um, certainly on some of the good stuff that we've seen through the pandemic so far. So let me start off with a question that um, I want everybody to respond to. And it, it comes from a, an article that I read in Forbes magazine last year. And, and let me quote this, this, um, this extract to you because I think it's actually quite, it captures some of the things that we need to think about in universities. So it starts with, we don't know how long this pandemic will last or what its full effects will be, but we do know that it has forced us to grow in ways that many that may otherwise have taken us years. It's allowed us to create new flexibilities to support our employees and new, new tools to help us optimise. This situation presents an opportunity to accelerate cultural change and transformation and create resilience for the future. 
For us as individuals and as universities, the challenge has been in learning how to survive through this uncertainty. The opportunity is to learn how to thrive. Can you comment on this statement from the perspective of students and academics and professional staff in your institution? John, can I start with you? I'll offer a, a, a few general comments, Judith, uh, given I'm not in an institution right now. Uh, I think, you know, the, the sort of commentary that you um, rehearse there is, is very powerful, actually. And um, I, I chaired a podcast um, a few weeks ago with four UK vice chancellors, uh, and one of them said something quite simple, but something I felt was quite profound, and that was... John, they said, we, we, we thought we knew our students. It turns out we're going to have to get to know them a whole lot better. And I say that because my sense is that there's been a little bit of a pivot here and that there is suddenly more power in the mind of the student. The student seems to want more choice. Certainly, as the, the um, research we undertook with the student body showed that there was a lot about the blended approach to learning that they really did like. And that once the pandemic is done, returning to normal is going to be fraught with challenge and difficulty. Um, reading an article in The Guardian a few weeks ago, the VC of Sheffield Hallam, one of Christina's uh, former institutions said, I've got a lot of letters from students saying, uh, I don't wanna come back. I've also got a lot of letters from students saying, I want to come back a lot. The problem we've got, he said, was how do we deal with that? How can we reflect that sense of choice? So, you know, I think, Judith, we've all changed as the paragraph, the country from Forbes attests. Some of us might not know we've changed, but we've changed. And, and I think that pressure to revert to normal could and should be resisted although not everybody will agree with that. So it's a really challenging space. And what, what do you, just before I ask the others, um, what advice did you give the vice chancellors? Um, look, we said, um, look at what you've done. You know, you, I speak primarily with a, a UK hat on here, but the same thing I know has happened in, in Australia. Um, the pivot from the physical to the digital in, in the midst of a crisis was extraordinary. And the students were so grateful for that. They were so um, grateful that they were able to continue learning, that they were able to be assessed, they were able to graduate. You know, it was a remarkable effort. Then as it moved into the academic year that's now concluding in the UK, there was a bit more pressure. There was lots of noise, you know, those around the sector were wondering about value, wondering about, you know, whether online was, was, was worth the money, let's be blunt about it. But again, the year, and so the pressure to produce better quality in a more business as usual sense grew. And again, universities responded. So we're saying, don't put that away. Don't put that in a cupboard and, you know, leave it as a record of the 1920 crisis. Use it, continue to, to share it with your students work with them in a sort of co-creation way to, to see what's best and what they need. There's so much about the flexibility that students with family or employment commitments, you know, enjoyed. It gave them more of a, an anytime, any place uh, way. 
but clearly the design of the curriculum's got to reflect uh, all sorts of other challenges, uh, accessibility, you know, bandwidth, uh, you know, how students live, who they share accommodation with, and all those, those questions I'm sure Judith will, um, will come up later. Our main advice has been, please let's just don't revert to whatever was the case in 2019. But in large universities, as we all know, power resides in strange places and, and making those things stick will be quite tricky for Alice and Kerry, Christina and anyone else you know, working in directly in an institution. So Kerry, can you then give me your response to that quote? Yes, of course. Um, I actually, I don't know if you saw, I was just nodding my head to everything that John said, because that just fully captures the experience here at Marjon. Um, we have students who have been resistant to change and just want things to go back to normal, whatever normal is. Um, but by and large, that new flexibility of blending the physical with the digital has opened up doors that people have previously never had before. So um, we have a huge cohort of students from um, backgrounds where they don't have a parent in higher education, for instance, or they have significant responsibilities outside of university. So being able to have that blended approach to academic skills or to library services, speaking from my own area, has been essential and is something that they don't want to lose because in, it's almost in closing the, the library doors and closing the doors to the physical, academic and library services, we've opened the online doors wider than ever. And students have appreciated that and now are in a, in a position where they can tell us what they want. And I agree with everything that John has said, we should not be losing that, we should be assimilating. We should be taking that on board and making sure that the hybrid um, style of delivery and response to services remains uh, for as long as we possibly can. Um, it's it's an abs it's an opportunity, not a threat. Alison, <clears throat> so I guess the the two main things for me are I, I think in terms of inclusive teaching and inclusive practice, uh, assessment, I think. The, the, the great thing has been that it's accelerated that. Uh, I think universities have strived towards, you know, uh, having a, 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 a sort of a better inclusive practice. And I think moving on into the digital space, the way that people have adapted and brought new practice in has been great. And I think a lot of that is more inclusive for, 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 for students. So that's one thing. The other part for me is about service delivery and what we found is that um, some of our services students have adapted really quickly and really appreciated the remote delivery of service. So things like disability services are, are do not attend, fail to attend rate has improved significantly because they don't have to find a funny building in a, in a bit of Bristol. They don't have to go anywhere and actually it's made it much more accessible for those students so that's that's great we found things like counseling groups are more accessible because if you're nervous or, or a bit unsure you can turn your camera off but you can participate so what we want to do is we want to keep the bits that, that have worked and offer those and for me it's about trying to have exactly as, as John and Kerry said it's about trying to make it 
and offer. You can choose, you can have some choice in this and we can maintain that a bit with, with service delivery. We can say, you know, because we've got a lot of students with really packed timetables who might struggle to go to a counselling appointment if they've got to get even, you know, out of the city um, uh, to attend. Well, they can now engage in that whereas the, perhaps they were they were limited so we want to keep it but we want to make it an offer if they want to come and see somebody face to face and that's important to them we want to be able to provide that so for me it's about trying to cherry pick the best bits and keep that um keep that sort of student choice and demand bit going and i think that's the other thing that we've learned is that actually with that flexibility we have had a lot of increased demand but some of that flexibility has allowed us to keep to keep a pace with that demand, whereas perhaps our sort of old practices that we were a bit wedded to wouldn't have wouldn't have allowed us to, to keep up with demand in the same way. And Christina. Um, absolutely. I would love to see cultural change, I have to say, and uh, to take the best of what happened uh, and has been happening. Um, in that first, you know, first lockdown for us, that first wave when we were kind of all sent home in March, the speed of change in universities was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, um, because in part we had no choice and we were all facing the same, you know, the same concerns and the same issues, which were how do we deliver the best education and support to our students? And I, I just want to talk a little bit about the impact on staff, because many staff go the extra mile. And so we had international students who couldn't get home, who were concerned because their parents, you know, were facing similar situations. They had financial difficulties and, it, it, you know, and the institution geared up to expand the food bank, expand food vouchers all the ways that it can do that. Um, we had colleagues who were, you know, certainly in the early days of isolation, when you had one or two students taking students who were in isolation, their suppers. I mean, the, what, what people did actually was amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, but I think we can't rely on individuals all the time just to do that extra. We have to think about this systemically. And for me, we have to think about student well-being and staff well-being as a whole thing. And too often in universities, they're separate. So student services sits here and HR sits there. <laughs> yes. And we're all human. And we all need to understand that we're facing these challenges in different ways. We've got different challenges, all of us, but actually we are facing those and what has been best about that must be built on. And so that's my kind of plea, um, you know, to see the opportunity in what has been honestly a really tough time for everybody. But before I just follow up on something, can I invite, people that are listening to the webinar to pose questions to the panel and throughout the uh, the presentations I will then bring it together so that uh, your questions can be answered rather than the ones that um, I've, I've, I've put together. In, in that, um, that quote the word that stood out for me is thrive and how can we 
what are the conditions? And you talked about the social conditions, the cultural conditions and the structural conditions. But what are the conditions that will enable staff and students to thrive from the things that we've learned? Because in fact, I don't think anybody is thriving at the moment. So how can we create that, that discourse of possibility and optimism so people can thrive? So John, can I throw it back to you? Given that you know, I'm just I'm just going around the tiles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, look, I, I just just to sort of link the, the comments that uh, colleagues were making there to to your question. I think in in the UK, um, and I, and I sense in Australia too. There's also a narrative in the media that sort of online blended is kind of bad stroke, not value for money. And in person, you know, on campus is somehow good and value. And until that narrative is somewhat, you know, altered, considerably altered, it's very difficult to get across what will make, you know, students and staff thrive because the starting point in the minds of the policy makers, the policy influencers is somehow that going back to normal is, is as it should be. That was their university experience, therefore it should be everybody else's. Um, you know, and, and that, that's kind of interesting. Um, conditions, I mean, uh, to, to, to the question, um, as well as all the good things about um, online learning that our, our surveys threw up, they also threw up um, some negative points. So, you know, th there was clearly the, the, the whole issue of accessing um, material, um, come back to that. Often timeliness, scheduling, timetabling in these early days suited the academics, the university more than it suited the students. And, and this is the point that I wanted to make really, that there's a sense that, you know, online learning, it is hard, it's difficult, it can feel overwhelming. Students told us they were receiving what they felt to be too much work. There was a larger volume of independent work expected than usual, but without the benefit of timely support. And that as you were concentrating, focusing on screen, you know, it felt too long, there were insufficient breaks, that caused fatigue, it caused one or two mental health concerns. Um, and and at, at its worst, it could lead to, to isolation and, and loneliness. Now, I think all of that is kind of sort of understandable, given the pace <laughs> Christina articulates very well, the, the way in which staff responded was, was indeed remarkable. But to let everyone thrive, we've got to get the basics right, got to get Wi-Fi right on and off campus, access to hardware and software. We've got to create more interactivity in the learning that's done online whether that's quizzes, games, tests, small group work, we've got to make better use of recordings um, so that they can be watched again and again and at a pace that helps the learner. There's a staff development issue um, around, you know, the academy being able to use the online tools in pedagogically sound and inclusive ways, um, create opportunities for engagement to try and build in those informalities in, in, into the learning environment. If we can do that, Judith, then thriving becomes, you know, the norm, not the exception. 
I'm sure others have got plenty to add to that. Kerry. Yeah, thank you, Judith. I think the, the bit that I would like to add to that is around confidence. I think to thrive, you need confidence, and that comes from encouragement and having the right people saying the right things at the right time. So um, I think Alison said that um, students being able to access services on their terms led to um, an increase in service uptake, and we definitely saw that here at Plymouth Marjon. Um, with, for instance, our study skills programme, but it's, we have a, a programme of information, digital and study skills that we put together and it's branded AIM for Plymouth Marjon. And these are sessions that people can self-elect to attend. Our attendance was incredible during lockdown. Um, we had sessions with 30, sometimes 40 people in them. And that's considering we have such a small student number, that was actually phenomenal. And what was really great was that by participating in these sessions, it was nice to see that the people who were sitting with their cameras off by the end of their course were actually switching them on and engaging. So I think this is one of the huge things we need to tackle if we're expecting students to thrive is this issue of confidence. What does confidence mean? What does that look like for our students? How are we instilling that and making sure that they feel confident? to succeed and thrive in COVID conditions. I think that's one of the biggest issues. Okay, Alison. I guess for me, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, we're all in the same boat. We're not all in the same boat. We've all been in the same storm, but in really different boats or rafts or hanging on to, you know, life belts or whatever. So I think what people need to thrive out of this situation is going to be really different. It's definitely not a one size fits all. Um, so I think for me, it's about trying to offer, you know, something that is inclusive, that does recognise the different experience people will have had and the different starting points people are coming coming from, um, even more than we have. So I, I guess a bit as Christina was saying, it's that it's that cultural change really that is more recognises that 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 point. And, and um, I think from talking to students, what they've really missed in terms of their experience, uh, and I think is probably impacting on their ability to thrive, is the, the feeling connected and the, the sense of belonging and having a, a, a community. They've had a very limited um, opportunity to, to meet like-minded people and to, to develop those friendships and relationships which are really important if you're going to thrive um, in any in any situation and if they haven't found that in that small group of people their opportunities to do that have, have been really affected so I think it's about trying to really build in those opportunities for students to make connections with other students, with staff, with with the community where they live, you know, all of those things, because I, I know from my perspective, human interaction really is part of my well-being if I don't have that. And, and the screen is great, the screen is great, but it's very different. And I think we have to acknowledge that and we have to accept its limitations around that and, and look at how we can help people connect in in other ways as well as keeping the best best bits of the of the of the online online opportunities and how do we help staff thrive because staff are at the other end of this 
Yeah, um, we've 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 tried. We have tried a lot to try and do that, and and I think we've we've had mental health champions, and we've had senior staff talking about this stuff and trying to say, look, you know, we've all had challenges within this. Um, and trying to provide people with those opportunities as well. And I don't know that I've got the answer, Judith, because I think it's really difficult. I, I, I would I would say that I personally have really struggled with the length of the lockdown and what that's meant, the changes that's made to my working life. You know, I'm somebody who quite likes my water cooler moment or whatever, my getting a cup of tea and having a chat with somebody. Mm. Those are of really lost you don't get those you go straight into a meeting meeting ends you haven't got that walk to and from where you chat with somebody maybe have a bit of a moan we've lost a lot of that so I, I, I it's about trying to find ways around that I think a lot of us will want to again have a bit of a hybrid approach to it so that we will I used to love a day working from home don't you know uh, because it was because it was an exception now I think we're going to all have to try and be flexible look at creative ways to 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 support people with what suits them and what they need but the other challenge for me as somebody who's got to deliver services for students is I want to support staff but also I've got certain things that I think need to happen to, to appropriately deliver a service to students so it's that it's that constant balance okay christina so i absolutely echo everything alison said about building community i think it is unbelievably important that people feel connected and feel they have their place and their friends and they feel part of something and it is more difficult online to do that but I, I want to go back to something John said, which was those vice chancellors who said they need to get to know their students better. Uh, because I think what COVID showed us was actually how poor some of our students are and how and what their work, what their lives are like, their daily lives. And, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I have a default position about a student, which is an 18 year old full time goes to university and actually you know our students are dealing with caring responsibilities with work you know having to earn a living with serious concerns about their own health you know everything you know everything and and actually what covid did in many ways was uncover some of this because we were having to reach out to all students and make sure they were okay. And I think as someone at, at that time sitting in the center of an institution and um, you know, you could, you could see then the, the larger pattern of what was happening to students more, more than you, you meet them in your own department and you, 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 know, you have a kind of more localized view. So I think there is something about getting to understand the stresses on both students and staff. And if you came back to the staff issue, so one of the issues is we're working enormously long hours and we're not switching off. It's very hard to switch off. And many people have had family care, 
worries about parents in her, you know, in care homes or in hospital or other ends of the country, children, homeschooling, the whole rest of it, right? You've got students who have got lots going on in their house trying to learn online. Understanding these stressors and how you can adapt and be flexible is really important, really important to enable people to be able to thrive. And there was something in The Guardian yesterday, I think it was, um, about the right to switch off. And of course, in some sectors of the economy, the, the, you know, we live a privileged life as staff. You know, we can switch off if we like. Yes, of course, in some sectors, there, you know, if you switch off, there are questions asked. But actually, staff don't switch off. And students don't. We know what time students are mailing us, you know. So I think there's much more work to be done about understanding those stressors and seeing that flexibility is brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. Um, as Alison has said, it's made it much easier for lots of students, but it brings its own other um, challenges and demands. And that needs better understanding for me. There's a question that um, has come up from Hillary, Hillary Carlisle from uh, Norwich University of the Arts. And she says, at Norwich University of the Arts, we find that though our students express their need for extra support with wellbeing, they are quite resistant to attending anything that is badged as a wellbeing session. Mm -hmm. We're developing a program of sessions that include wellbeing, studentship and life skills that will be embedded in the curriculum. Is anyone else working in this area? And do you have thoughts on how this might work? I'll open that up to anybody who wants to make a comment. Can I just give a shout out to some of my colleagues at Sheffield Hallam in humanities, who actually did build in to one of their programs, um, well-being. Um, and they were a bit sneaky at first because they were running a dissertation planning day and they didn't tell the students that they were bringing someone along who was going to do a well-being um, uh, session, but they, you know, this person came. And because this, um, the outcome of that session, one of the outcomes of that session was students heard other people and heard that others were actually having this, its same similar issues. It actually did create some level of cultural change amongst students and amongst staff, and it enabled you know, enabled those conversations to continue. And of course, the success of that meant that we were then able to try and start embedding and piloting that across the institution. I can't honestly say if anybody's on at the minute from Hallam, who, um, you know, knows where they are with all of that kind of stuff, they might say, but honestly, you know, it was a bit sneaky at first, I have to say, but it worked. Mm. And I think you only need to do that once and then students understand how valuable it is. Alison, do you want to make a comment? Oh, sorry, John. Only uh, thanks, Judith. Um, and hello, Hilary. Nice to, to see you on, on here. Um, only to, to build on what Christina said. Um, we published a report, um, I think it was January this year, um, student and staff wellbeing in, in higher education. And, and that, that document, um sort of embraced four principles um that that 
it was everybody's kind of business, that it was a lifelong sort of project. And importantly here, that it, it needed to be embedded in a sort of whole curriculum uh, approach. It was a collective endeavor. So Hillary, it might be worth you digging that uh, report out. If I was technically more skilled, I'd put the link in the chat, but I'm not sure I'll be able to, 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 to do that. Just reflecting too quickly, it's another example of that confidence thing that Kerry spoke about articulately a few a few minutes ago, um, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Thanks. Alison. I think it's always a challenge to get students to attend uh, things. And I think the, the way that they're marketed is incredibly important. Um, with academic colleagues at the University of Bristol have had amazing success with the science of happiness. Uh, it's it's now and because it was so successful in its first sort of a couple of iterations it's now an accredited course module that you can that students can take they have great uptake across the board and and students really love it and they come away with great well-being skills and it's you know there's homework it's, it's a proper a proper units that they can take so i think and i, and I love them the marketing of that not to trivialize it but the science of happiness it for me is better than talking about you know building resilience or well-being it's it's positive but it also appeals to that sort of academic nature of our, of our students so i think there's there's yeah if people have really cracked that marketing bit let me know because i'm really happy to learn how we can improve uptake but I would say that's a really good example um, that, uh, that academics have led on. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for, for that approach, that sort of embedded approach. Mm -hmm. Kerry? Have you, Kerry, have you got some um, suggestions? Yes, I'm just, just building on something that um, I think John said about it being everybody's business. So that's certainly the um, stance we take here at Marjong is that wellbeing doesn't need to be kind of a two hour session that students need to opt to attend. It can be as simple as a quick five minute at the beginning of a study session saying, you know, how are you doing? How, how's the last week been for you? And making it everybody's business. And that's going both ways. So um, what one of the most striking things for me during lockdown was um, the amount of students that I was reaching out to and saying, we have this, we have that to offer you. You know, please, we're here, we're, we're, we're ready to help. The amount of people and students in particular who were coming back and saying, how are you? You know, as a member of staff was just so refreshing and lovely. I really do think it brought out the best, the best in people, but it also made it so easy not to, not to reduce the whole well-being thing to just a, just a word, because it's not, it's complicated, complex. It comes from multiple backgrounds. But asking somebody how they're doing as standard is something that should be integrated into most services, regardless of what you're doing, because there will always be a well-being slap, whether that's financial, your digital well-being, academic well-being. And just starting those conversations is so important for us working in HE. Well, I agree. In, in Australia, we've got this program called Are You OK? And it's it's the same sort of intent. And it's it's amazing that that sort of connectedness, but that showing of, uh, and I guess in universities, it's part of our duty of care. We've got a question from Anonymous, and uh, on Anonymous makes this, uh, makes this statement, but you might like to respond to it. 
Don't we also have to take into account factors such as being in debt, in debt because you pay fees for students and ridiculous workloads for staff? Unless we address these underlying issues, everything we do is tinkering around the edges. Am I going to have to use that Canadian word? I'm going to voluntold. I'm going to volunteer you too. Well, I'm, I'm happy to, to start with that. I think the, the nature of higher education has, has changed. I think, you know, the, the marketization in the UK, that that is true. And I think it has had an impact. I, I, I think it would be uh, disingenuous of me to to. to to suggest otherwise, really, I think the the idea of when I did my degree, if somebody said to me, "Are you going to take on this much, um, you know, debt?" <laughs> At this point, I'm not sure how I would have felt about it. So I think we have to recognise that it's absolutely had an impact. But but I so we have to recognise that and acknowledge it and and try and support our students with that as best that we, the best that we can and and. Uh, I think it's unhelpful in the UK the way that it's been badged. I would I would much prefer if we talked about a graduate tax. Um, I know that perhaps doesn't massively change it, but but it's 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 more. Uh, I think it's more accurate language to be honest, and I and I think that that helps. But I think you have to have to recognise the impact. We have to recognise the economic situation our students are in. We have to acknowledge it. But not wanting to to quote Donald Trump, I think I'm going to inadvertently. We are where we are, and and that is the reality that we are in. And we have to, whilst we might want to to challenge those systemic issues if we can, and and we we've got mechanisms to do that, we have to deal with the reality it is, and we have to help people as much as as much as we can in their position and the environment that they're in. You know, I, I I guess it's yeah for me it's acknowledging that, that 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 has had an impact, but trying to do what we can within that space. Others want to make a comment or an observation? Oh, sorry. Um, I, I, look, I think I, I think the, the questioner, you know, raises something that that is fundamental. Um, and whether this is controversial or not, I, I don't know, but. You know, we, we've, we've had tuition fees for a, a long time now. The Brown Review in the UK and England was, was 2010. Um, just maybe there's been a bit of complacency in the sector about students will come, they will always come, you know. It, and it's not about price, it's about value. And, and I think the pandemic has shaken that complacency. It's the point I was trying to make at the top of the, the session that, I think there's been a little bit of a pivot. Maybe it's more than a little bit of a pivot towards student power, um, you know, and, and student as consumer. I know these are these are terms that the sector doesn't like, customer and consumer and all of that. But when you're paying, or the perception is you're paying, you want to demand a better, stronger, more available set of, of services. And of course, HE is not transactional. You don't go and buy it, take it away, and that's it. it it's a shared endeavour. So the engagement of the student with the academic community, with the professional community, to be, you know, not just passive recipients of learning, but active participants in it, and even, dare I say, co-creators of it, 
starts to generate the value that takes the negative narrative about fees away. But there are some big, big questions in there, I think, that the questioner deliberately, I think, wants us to, to try and get at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Um, just a question for all of you, um, and, and some of you have alluded to it in passing, but what did you learn about your own resilience and that of your colleagues across the university or, or whatever institution you work in uh, over this last 18 to 20 months? And Kerry, can I ask you? Yeah, of course. Um, I think for me, I learned that I'm a lot more resilient than I initially thought, which was a pleasant surprise. Um, I don't, I think I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, but I also learned that I'm only resilient as the people who back me up. So I think we've already spoken about the importance of human connection, and that's what made me resilient um, in throughout the pandemic and the lockdowns was knowing that I had colleagues and students and a community, a learning community behind me um, and to work with and work on things. So that's definitely where resilience came from for me. Uh, So for instance, um, in terms of kind of how did we create those connections to maintain resilience? We ran some online study groups, which which were, you know, quite successful um, but also making sure that the community stayed connected by just having regular check-ins with colleagues and students so as I I mentioned before just asking that question how are you doing that kind of thing Um, and I think I've been surprised by just how much I need my team and how much I need my colleagues and how much I need I think um, Alison and Christina, you alluded to those water cooler conversations, those incidental conversations where you take them for granted, but they're actually where the real work gets done. And that's where that's where the real ideas come from. And I really did take those things for granted before, but now being back, being back on site and sort of working between from home, working on site. I love, I love the jaunt around campus where you can just quickly discuss something on the fly that's where I feel most productive and that that then inspires me to go ahead and if I can just say one more thing just picking up on what um John said about the students as consumers we've seen this an awful lot at Marjon and I think because the fees are high they are definitely seeing sort of every step as you like around the campus as how much of my fee is coming (laughs) is coming off at that point um but I think that's why it's really important to integrate students into your uh, uh, service delivery and service design so they can be collaborators. You know, they're stakeholders. They are, and their, their knowledge and their experience is so important for the service delivery. And that in turn creates resilience for your service and for your staff and puts us all on an equal pegging. You know, we don't exist without the students. The students don't exist without us. So I think that's, my key take home from that. Thank you. Christina? Um, Well, I led the first wave of COVID at Kent. And uh, I have to say, um, for me, it was one of my best professional experiences. And it might seem a bit weird because we were doing 18 hour days, seven days a week. You know what made it? The people I was working with. 
just seriously, honestly, I couldn't have wished for a better bunch of people. And that made all the difference because we were all working crazy hours, that is true. Um, but because we, you know, half time didn't know what was going to hit us next because government advice kept changing and changing and changing and changing, you know, actually it did create an environment in which we could come together and really pull together. And it's for me a lasting joyous memory. Um, when I talk to colleagues there now, of course, how long has it been? 18 months now? It's people are absolutely worn out, absolutely worn out. And I think in that first wave, you know, you kind of just got to get up and get on with it, thinking, oh, I'll be sorted by autumn, be sorted by spring. And now we're wondering, is this, you know, are we in for five years, for example, or something like that? So uh, that was my experience, I have to say. And the value of the value of the people you work with counts for more than anything. And I include the students in that because mm -hmm. our students were just fabulous as well. Alison. I, I completely agree. I, I think I've been amazed by the the way that our staff and students have kind of managed what's been in, incredible because the speed at which things were changing and you turning and you know and we had to completely keep responding uh, ha has been phenomenal i i think as well what i've i've, I've really learned i've learned more about the people that i work with than i think i probably would have done with more years in a, in a short amount of time. I know their strengths and their vulnerabilities and they probably know mine better than we would normally. So I think it's been really, it's been, it's been emotional, the whole, the whole experience. I think as well, we are all pretty exhausted and the idea that we, we've got this far, it's tantalizingly close, but this, the sense that, that we might be back into lockdown in, in October, I think the impact on people's particularly thinking about, well, everybody's, but, but students, our first years, for example, who've had the two most extraordinary years in their education, I'm so worried for them that we will go back into some sort of autumn lockdown and the impact then, the disappointment and the heartache for them, I think that will be... You know, for me, that's not a test of resilience. I mean, I just think, you know, it, it, it will just be heartbreaking for everybody. So, yeah, it's it's been it's been a very emotional 18 months and people have really come together to get through it. And that's been remarkable. And the, and the students positivity, I think, despite everything, has been, you know, remarkable as well. They've got, you know, most of them have got through their studies and they've progressed and and that's you know that's an, an amazing testament to them and to the staff but I'm not sure how much longer we can keep going I'm you know probably we will just carry on because we haven't we won't have much choice but it it will be a difficult a difficult thing because I think a lot of people have they've had enough of it now <laughs> we're over it now John <laughs> Did I see it? Did um, I hear a little foot stamping there as well? 
I, I mean, I'm getting on a bit, Judith, um, you know, and uh, I, I, it's been a real challenge for me on the personal front. You know, I, I've, I've worked, you know, 40 years going to work and suddenly not to be able to go to work was kind of just downright odd, really. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd spent the six years pre-JISC um, as managing director for the tribal group's uh, higher education business and I'd been you know all over the world I'd been in hotels 200 plus nights in 2018 and then all of a sudden I, I'm I joined JISC in March 2020 so you know in as the pandemic was just beginning so not only did I have the challenge of not being able to go out but I've never met any of my colleagues who I was just working with you know as I joined Jess, that, that was that was weird, as you can imagine. You know, getting to know people through mediums like this, um, and and what's surprised me about my own resilience was, despite getting on a bit, my own flexibility. I, I, I was able to adapt. I was able to focus. I, I joined an organisation that I think, you know, was first class in terms of how it approached the management of its people in Jess uh, in, in the pandemic and also how it approached the relationship with our members uh, as well. Um, created very quickly a, a COVID task force uh, drawn from all corners of the organization, um, starting to put together materials that we thought would be helpful to members uh, and just doing that, you know, in addition to everything else and on a pro bono basis, it, it was a, a fantastic team effort. And to the points that, Kerry, Allison, and Christina have all made, I did feel a curious and rapid bond with people I'd never met, which was, is something to reflect on. I, you know, I, I, I need to think more about that in an intellectual sense. It really was quite interesting. As things opened up in the UK or in England, I did start to, to get out. Every time I could get out, I got out. So I'm in our London office now, but I used to be in the London office, you know, uh, once the, the, the rules loosened a little bit. Um, the, just the psychology of going to work and coming home, even if I was the only person in the office, I think helped my own personal well, mental well, well-being. Um, I, I met people who work with me and, and for me in cafes in Penrith in the northwest of England or in Shrewsbury in it, on, on the edge of, of, of Wales there, um, you know, so took the opportunity to reconnect, to get some of that human empathy that is so missing from, from the screen. Um, uh, I think everyone else has said everything else really about, you know, how we need to emerge from this in the best possible shape. Let's hope, Alison, we don't go back into some kind of, you know, national or local lockdown regime, because I do think if it happens again, that will be more difficult, I do. In, in the state of Victoria, they've had 200 days now of lockdown since the beginning of the pandemic, and they've had six lockdowns, and, and people are really on the edge now. And it's, it's just, you know, it's, we, we feel great sympathy for our colleagues in Victoria, but now in New South Wales, we're in a much worse state. So, you know, it's, it's brought the, the best of people and the worst of people because the politicians are just sort of blame shifting and, and finger pointing and say, well, it's your fault or you didn't do this. And that's just not helpful. 
But we've, we've got a comment from Vanessa Steenkamp and she says, uh, we need intervention as no one can carry on. Any suggestions? What suggestion would you give to your vice chancellors or your, your board in, in your case, John? So what, what, what suggestion, Alison, would you give to your vice chancellor at, at Bristol in terms of what we need to do to just remember those, those, those um, films in the 1950s, the carry on films? I don't, I don't know that I've got the answer to that, Judith. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I always appreciate when people acknowledge how rubbish something has been. I'm not a fan of the, of the putting too much spin on it because I just think actually recognizing that and, 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 and again, recognizing the, the work that, that staff have put in, which has been extraordinary. Um, and, and, you know, and, and saying how difficult it has been is always a good start for me. Whereas okay. if it's too positive, I'm, I, I get, I'm, I'm too cynical and I, they lose me straight away. But so I think acknowledging how difficult it is. And I think it is about, as I said before, about trying to have this flexible for staff, flexible for students whilst doing what we have to do as much as we can. So it's going to be trying to find this quite delicate position where we're not asking staff to, to over, over promise, um, but we're meeting what students need and, and want, but also thinking about what can what can staff manage now because they have had you know, uh, uh, and I think when I've I've hit low points and my staff have hit low points is when you see things which is very critical. You know, uni I've, I've seen headlines, universities are shut. They, people need to get back to work. And, and as though just being in the office is the only demonstration that you're, that you're back in work. I think as well, although there is some economic uncertainty around at the moment, uh, if I was a vice chancellor at the moment, I, I would be saying, don't see this as a time to try and save money. This is a time to invest, invest in resources because we are going to need them because I think the students coming through are going to need more support. So this isn't, you, you might be looking at a, a, a sort of a slightly um, uh, insecure economic picture, but this is not a time to be looking at saving money. This is a time to be investing in the resources you've got and the most important resource you've got is your staff and then in turn you're investing in, in the, your student experience so I would say commit to that. Great. Hopefully he'll listen. Kerry. I think coming from a smaller university it's um, investments all well and good um, but obviously sometimes you're just constrained by budget and you know it doesn't matter what you need what the students need sometimes the cost is just too high so that's always one of the things that I struggle with is trying to maintain access trying to maintain some sense of provision whilst managing the purse strings um, so that's that's a really tricky one and I'm not sure again I'm not sure that I have the answer on that one I think if if you can look after 
your team's well-being and the people around you's well-being so just I know you sound like a broken record but those check-ins are so important and acknowledging like Alison has just said when something is really really rubbish and giving people the space to deal with that um, and offering your support in terms of that is really important I don't necessarily think that's an intervention but that might help quell some of the exhaustion and burnout that staff are feeling um, it's that support and I think just being able to talk freely about your own well-being the impact that the pandemic has had on you and the workload those conversations are so important and should be happening on a weekly basis um, so find find that time to check in with your teams or your students to make sure that they are handling life, handling work. Um, I think the fact that we are now using digital means that we're, we've effectively brought work into our homes, we've brought work into our bedrooms or spare rooms or you know wherever you're working from. So I don't think it's a question that's taboo to ask anymore, just to say, you know, how are you doing? How's, how's life been for you? I think we're all kind of in in each other's spaces so often that we need to acknowledge that well-being is important but we also need to demonstrate as well the behavior that we would expect our staff to take so for me it's really important to demonstrate to my team when i'm switching off um and saying i expect you guys to switch off too you know reinforcing these things i know it's not always possible and some people have to work outside of hours but it's so important to give yourself that that space that what John just said about going to the office and leaving the office is is so important. We, I really did take that for granted before, but now it's a thing of beauty. My walk home is is my time to kind of disconnect and and just think right. I've left work in that building, so now when I get home, that's my time and I can I can do things. Whereas when when you're working from home you it's always in the back of your mind because it's on the kitchen table or you know you've got you've got a call scheduled it's so important to maintain those boundaries for your own well-being you know for your own professional well-being as well and modeling that behavior so you've so got your colleagues so the so the message that you'll you'd give to your vice chancellor as a headline would be the headline would be um perhaps model the behavior that you expect your staff to take so if you are saying well-being is important then make sure you're looking after your own and demonstrating the ways that well-being can be achieved fantastic christina so i would absolutely echo that that we and i'm the worst person in the world for this but role modeling work-life balance it's a, one of the signal stressors people experience. I would also say um, I was struck by a statistic from the US. Um, it's around 75% of the US workforce have caring responsibilities. And I'd, although I know sort of Mary's got children and Bill's got elder care and da, 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 you know, I've never actually sat and counted. <laughs> I actually never counted uh, how many people I work with. Um, actually do have care responsibilities. And I think a little census of staff and students 
of what they're dealing with outside of the kind of formal relationship is really salutary to do. I'd say start a say no club. And I go back to going the extra mile and going the extra mile, I, it's wonderful. Yes, you feel good, they feel good. It makes the world go round. But actually you cannot rely on lots of people burning themselves out or getting compassion fatigue because they are feeling they have to keep just pushing themselves through. So actually, and you know, and it's the hardest thing most of us can say is actually no. And the other thing, and um, I know some colleagues at Lancaster have done this, and this, and it's simple, it's an email policy. And you don't send emails, say, before nine in the morning, and you don't send them after five. And, you know, one of the things we talk about is students emailing us all the time. But actually, if you have a policy which is for students and for staff, um, that is so simple to put in place. It's hard to get people to stick to it, I agree, but it's a very simple and a very effective thing because it does mean you're allowed to switch off or do something else out of those, out of those hours. And finally, I'd say um, plan at least a couple of weeks a year where there are no meetings whatsoever because the meeting culture in universities is bonkers. At absolutely bonkers and uh I, i've always always been um i'm old enough to remember works fortnights when the factories closed down and everybody went off and everything stopped and actually we do need periods of time in our life the only time i experience that now is around christmas you know so we need periods of time when actually the world stops because it's pointless you sending me loads of emails you know the Friday before you go on leave saying I want to reply by the day you come back on leave and then I go on leave and I come back and I've got Matt yes that's what we that's what we're doing to each other we're unloading our desks and then we go oh that's tidy but other people are the recipients of this. And I think a lot of those micro behaviors, and I'm the worst at this, I absolutely acknowledge it. Um, we just need to watch ourselves a bit more, think what we're actually passing on to other people. So those are my hints and tips. Okay. John. Oh, listen, there's some powerful stuff there from from everyone and and some handy hints and tips as well frankly so th thank you um just listening to kerry when, when she was uh, reflecting on working at home i remember early in the pandemic i was present when somebody said i wish it had been me uh, we're, we're not working from home we're, we're sleeping at work and i thought that was the kind of nice way of of putting it really and it, and it has been a bit like that i, I know we're short of time Judith, I mean, I think Vanessa's um, question is simple, but but really a really good one. Mm. Um, what, what what from a JISC perspective, it was it was ve very hard to have anything amounting to a strategic conversation with any of our members until about March this year, because every time you were turning round. You were putting a fire out, and as you put it out, another one started to burn. 
um, it, it was moving from one moment, one crisis to another. So not surprising, as Vanessa says, that people are, are tired, they're exhausted. Everybody had stepped up and stepped in and done everything they could. So to have a strategic conversation about how do we get the right interventions, it wasn't happening. I think it's beginning to happen now, better in some universities than others. Um, we, we get approached about, I speak generally, can you help us understand digital leadership, digital strategy? How does our strategy become a digital one? You know, university management teams, university leadership teams are used to managing in the physical world, not in the digital world. Um, we had some numbers given to us um, that suggested, I, I haven't empirically proven them, but suggested that, you know, pre-pandemic for every pound invested in the digital estate, 10 pounds was invested in the physical estate. And those ratios have got to alter. You know, it's easier to build a building. It, 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 the processes and procedures are well understood. You know, you, you, you have a budget, you have a plan, you have a timescale. It, it's less easy to know how much you should invest in improving your VLE or ramping up your cybersecurity or whatever it might be. So my intervention would be, you know, Invest, I think Alison said that, um, and yes, for the short term, but think long. Think about where we're going to be in 2030, what the learning and teaching, the pedagogical landscape is going to look like in 2030. And, you know, act and think strategically in your own context to um, give you the best chance of achieving that. And in fact, as, as you say that, I'm reminded of a... Um webinar that I listened to the other day and one of the um, participants made this this comment she suggested that you think big act small and move quickly and to me that captured that that really captured the way that we need to respond to the pandemic think big act small and move quickly and our time is up and can I thank the four of you uh, for this wide-ranging and very animated discussion. Um, I really, I've enjoyed it. And I hope members of the, uh, the audience have also enjoyed it. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone. Bye.